We're starting a new series uh, at Sedaris, our second full series. We had a kind of a mini-series, so we'll call it number three. This series, as you'll see as I begin to talk about it, is something that I think is very important because I think that there is a serious problem that we have in our city. I think it's a problem in our country, on our continent, in our world in general, but I think it's particularly a problem in a city like Seattle. Here's what it's not. The main problem in our city is not some alternative morality or lack of morality. That's not the main problem. It's not atheism or aggression against God. That's not the main problem. The main problem is not that there's other religions or worldviews present in our city, some of which we'll discuss over the next eight weeks. It's not greed or consumerism, although that's a problem. The primary problem actually is this. We are horrible at conversation. We're the worst. I think we've lost a desire for it. We've lost our intention. We've lost the ability actually to have great conversations. And so what we've done is we've deferred our right to dialogue about things that really matter, the things of greatest concerns, the things of substance, we've deferred that right and we've given it away to talking heads in the media and we say, you do the talking for us, we can't do it. So here's what we need to do. If that's the main, the primary problem in Seattle, and you can argue with me if you think that is or not, my job is to convince you over the next however many years you're around that that's the main problem. Because this, this topic's not going away. You hear it over and over again, don't you, that I talk about this. Here's what we need to do. We need to reclaim the ground that we've lost. We need to help our city actually learn to have great conversations again. And there's no better group of people than Christians to do this. Why? Because Christians actually seem to care about these sorts of things. What do I mean? I mean that the way we answer the biggest questions out there would tell us that we should care most about the answers and about creating dialogue and conversation because of the way we actually answer. Because we're the ones that are supposed to care about these kinds of things and we should care about having great conversations. But what's the problem? We're just as bad as everyone else we suck at conversations. We're actually unable to do it. We lack the desire, just like everybody else. We lack the intentionality, just like everybody else. We actually lack the ability, just like everyone else, to have great conversations. And you know what? We're just as lazy about conversations. Posting something to your Facebook is not the same as having a conversation, no matter which side of any argument or issue you're on. That's not a conversation. That's throwing a grenade over the wall and hoping that it hurts somebody. That's not what we should be doing as Christians. We should be having actual conversations with people. Sitting down, listening. I think that's part of the biggest issue. I know I struggle with that. I want to become a great listener. And I hope that as we go through this next series, what we find is that we can become great listeners if we do a little bit of groundwork, a little bit of study, a little bit of examination, consideration on the front end, 
before we step into these great conversations. So why am I so annoyingly passionate about conversations? What are you annoyingly passionate about? If you're married, you could probably turn to your spouse and tell them what they're annoyingly passionate about. It's that thing that they always are talking about. They won't stop talking about it. Feel free to whisper it right now if you want. I gave you kind of some dead space there just to kind of get a little shot in. What are you annoyingly passionate about? Well, if you've been around here for any time at all, I am annoyingly passionate about two things. One, God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I can't stop talking about those guys. I think that they're great. I think that they changed lives. They've changed mine, so I talk about them a lot. I'm annoyingly passionate about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Two, I'm annoyingly passionate about having bigger, better, grander, more substantial conversations. In fact, my buddy Brian, who's here tonight, he gave me the greatest compliment that I've ever gotten from a human being. He said, Dave, I've been spending so much time with you that you're ruining cocktail conversations for me. And he has to have a lot of those for his job. I said, Brian, I love you. Tell me that as often as you want. There's no better compliment a man can get when he is annoyingly passionate about great conversations to say that he's killing cocktail conversations. In fact, I've made that my personal mission in life to kill all cocktail conversations so that when you go to a business outing, people are just talking about what they believe about God and the afterlife. That's kind of my hope, okay? It's going to be a really awkward place to do business here in Seattle, okay? But why am I so annoyingly passionate about conversations? Because I actually think that the God that I'm also annoyingly passionate about is the great starter of conversations. Did you know that? He is the great starter of conversations. Very first verse in the Bible, God said, let there be light. God said, he started the conversation of creation and he spoke it into existence and he continues to hold it together by the word of his power. He is the great starter of the conversation of creation. But he not only did that, because of the fall, man needed redemption, and so God started another conversation. And what did he do? John 1, and the Word became flesh. And he sent his Son, Jesus, who is the Word, and he started the next great conversation, which is the conversation of salvation through Jesus Christ. And he started it by sending the Word to earth. And then you know what he does? If you're following Jesus it's not because you're smarter than anybody else. It's not because you're more moral than anybody else. It's not because you're more disciplined than anybody else. The only reason that you are actually walking with and have a relationship with God is because He started a conversation with you. And you can take all the credit you want for it, but that probably means you don't know Him. Because He started the conversation with you and He pursued you. And you know what? When you shunned Him the first several times, he probably kept trying to have a conversation with you. And if, you are, if you've accepted Christ, then at some point, you started talking back. He's the great conversation starter. 
So that's why I'm annoyingly passionate about conversations, because I believe God's annoyingly passionate about it, and he's wanting to have a conversation with us. And so we, as his followers, creating his image, should want to have conversations with others, because we're actually being like God, which is what we were designed to do. So, this is only our first summer, but my hope is that every summer we're going to do a series. Because you say, Dave, I get it. I believe conversations are important. You talk about it all the time. How do I actually do it? Because you know what? I don't think we know. So every summer, until we change our mind, which means this summer, for sure, we are going to talk about big conversations. And then we're going to have some really fun subtitle underneath big conversations. So that's my setting up sort of the grand plan for the next however many years that we're going to actually work together as a church to get better at having conversations. It's a novel idea, right? We've got a problem. We need a solution. Let's work together. It's very simple, actually, so we're going to do it. I think sometimes as churches we talk a lot about the problems, but we don't actually start working together to address and get better at solving them. So that's what we're going to do. Each summer tackle a different aspect of what it means or hopefully something that's helpful to having great conversations. So one of the reasons why I think conversations are so hard for us to have is a little thing called fear. And fear's been on my mind all week because I've been living in fear. This is one of the reasons why I did not have time to work on my sermon, because I'm living in fear. We have a spider problem at our new house. I mean, a serious spider problem. And I get a phone call. I'm working on my sermon, actually. I get a phone call from my wife, who has just talked to the pest guy that we called to fix our problem, and she says this. The young gentleman has told me that we have flesh-eating spiders in our house. (laughs) That's what she tells me. I said, honey, I'm on my way home. When you have a seven-week, now eight-week-old son, and your wife calls you and said, there's flesh-eating spiders at the house, and you grew up when I did, when arachnophobia and Jeff uh, Daniels and all that was uh, running around with the spiders, you run home when you know you have flesh-eating spiders, man, and it has debilitated me all week, the fear of spiders. Arachnophobia. Fear is what? It's distracting. I've been so distracted all week long because every time I see a discoloration in our hardwood floors, you know what I assume it is? A flesh-eating spider. Hobos. That's the name of the spiders. Hobo spiders. And just when I thought I had sort of gotten a little bit okay with hobo spiders... We went and bought some spider kill spray, and there was only three types of spiders listed on the spray. Black widows, everybody knows those are bad. Brown, what is it, recluses, and hobo spiders. If you get your name on the label of spider death repellent stuff, you know it's bad. And I've been distracted. Every time I see a dark coloration in the wood, I start stomping on it. I can't focus. And it's actually, in all honesty, been debilitating to me because I can't get it out of my head. I start seeing spiders everywhere, you know? It's like when you buy a new car and then you start seeing them all over the road. You're like, I thought nobody had these until you bought one. And then you're like, everyone has the exact same color car 
the same model in the same year as me. I've seen spiders everywhere now. There's probably 10 spiders behind me right now. So fear distracts, it debilitates, and to be honest, it's completely draining. And my fear this week of spiders has drained me. And my energy is low. So what do you do when your energy is low? You go on a date night with your wife. So I took my wife out on a date. That's right. Took her out, dinner and a movie, no big deal. Just a little something we did, right? We had fun, didn't we? And because I'm so clever, I combined the two, and we went to one of those fancy movie theaters where you can get food at the theater. So it's like, you still say dinner and movie, but really only did one thing. <laughs> and we saw this great movie called Inside Out. Yes. Yeah, great movie. It's an animated film, but don't be, you know, like a snob and don't go see it because it's a kid's film, because it's actually not for kids. It's for adults. And it's all about how your emotions control you. And so there's these different characters that are different emotions. You have joy and fear and sadness. And that's played by uh, the gal from The Office. What's her name? <laughs> Phyllis from The Office. Sadness, yeah. Disgust. And then, of course, there's anger. And they control this young girl as she grows up and learns what it means to be a young woman. This is a great movie. And man... Did it hit home for me? Because fear, the character fear, was great. He was running around and scared of everything. He was, distract he was so distracting for everyone. He didn't actually accomplish anything. He was debilitated. And he was so tired, at one point he fell asleep. And I'm like, fear is running my life right now. So how does fear relate to big conversations? I think the one of the main reasons we don't have great conversations is because we're fearful. Because we're scared that we might be wrong. We're scared that we might seem ignorant. We're scared somebody will figure out that we're not quite as sure as we pretend to be. And so you know what the best way to do when you're fearful is? Is to not engage in anything related to your fear. So I think we have a fear of big conversations, and so we just don't have them. So here's what I want to try to do this summer. I want to try through one avenue. This is just one avenue. Some of you might love it. Some of you might think it's too intellectual or heady. Some of you might get bored with it. But there's always next summer. But this summer, we are going to try to tackle this part of the fear. The fear of seeming ignorant, and uninformed of the way other people view the world. And so, this is going to be our text for the summer. This is a book called The Universe Next Door, and so we're calling our subtitle for this first big conversation summer is The Universe Next Door. And it's called The Universe Next Door, and it's probably more true today than when it was first written. This is in its fifth edition and more true in a city like Seattle than many other cities in America. But the idea is this, that on any block, for any of us, our neighbor right next door might actually live in a different universe than we do. Now, it's not actually a different universe, but they view it as a different universe. They don't believe the same core things about the way the world is that we do. And that scares us because they're living in a different universe. So the universe next door... I think it's a common obstacle is the fear of encountering somebody that views the world differently 
And so it paralyzes us and we end up only having great conversations with people that view the world exactly like we do. And we stir each other up. And then when we get into a conversation with somebody that views the world differently, we're so scared that we exit as quick as possible. We change the subject, maybe when they want to actually talk. So, the universe next door. And the basic premise that you'll find, you may or may not have heard uh, this term, but he talks through eight different worldviews, which is just a fancy way of saying, it's not that fancy actually, view of the world, okay? Or vision of life, vision of the world that we live in. So tonight what I want to do is I want to set up what a worldview is, and I want to take a look at the Christian worldview or the basics as a starting point that then we'll look at each of the other worldviews and we'll try to answer a few questions. We'll try to see similarities. We'll try to see differences. We'll try to see value in other worldview. We want to be informed. They might actually see something more true than we do because we maybe don't even understand what the Bible tells us about who God is or who we are. And then we want to see the gospel in certain other worldviews and see how they're maybe grasping for the same sort of thing, but they're going about it a different way. And all of that hopefully will help us be less fearful when somebody starts off the conversation with maybe a different worldview. So what is a worldview? When anyone thinks a thought, whether it's casual, like, where did I leave my watch? or something more profound, like who am I, they're actually filtering those words through their worldview. Let me try to explain that. How is a statement like, where is my watch, filtered through a worldview? If I ask, where is a watch, here's what I'm assuming. That I'm a personal agent who possesses ownership of some kind. I'm also assuming that I existed in moments prior, meaning I didn't just come to existence in this moment thinking that I used to have a watch that I no longer can find, which means what? History is a real thing, and it's progressing. I'm also saying this. I'm saying that there's a physical world that exists apart from my own perceptions. If I'm asking where my watch is, I'm assuming that there's a physical world that exists apart from me. And in that world is my watch, and my watch is a part of that physical world. And finally, I'm assuming this, that my memories, the memories that I possess, relate to some real, actual world which actually exists apart from me. You say, wow, that's a lot that came out of where is my watch. Because what? Our worldviews are deeply entrenched in the way we do everything, the way we think about everything, the way we experience life. And they are either conscious, we either know that we think this way, or they're just subconscious, they're just a part of who we are. So here's what a worldview is, is not. A worldview is not necessarily fully articulated or even fully understood. It's not put together always, systematically and succinctly. It's not a codified, formal creed, necessarily. It's not necessarily refined into a theoretical philosophy. It's not necessarily expressed as a religion, although it might be. It's not always expressed, as I said, 
as a philosophy, although it might be. But here's the deal. Without a worldview, we can't actually think at all. So everybody's got a worldview, whether they know it or not. They're living based on it, whether they know it or not. And sometimes, even when they think that they're living based on it, they're not actually living to the worldview that they claim to be living according to. They're living according to another worldview that's their actual worldview that they're not articulating that's actually more subconscious than their own. Confused yet? Let me give you two professional definitions of what a worldview is, and I've actually written them in, in your bulletin if you want to read along. I've taken up almost your entire notes section <laughs> with this because I figured you might want to write this in because it was probably going to be the most well-said thing all night. So, here are two definitions. A worldview or a vision of life is a framework or set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world and our calling and future in it. This vision needs to be explicitly developed or sorry, does not need to be explicitly developed into a systematic conception of life. It may not be theoretically deepened into a philosophy. It may not be codified into creole form and may be greatly refined through cultural historical development. Nevertheless, this vision is a channel for the ultimate belief, beliefs which give direction and meaning to life. It is the integrative an interpretive framework by which order and disorder are judged. It is the standard by which reality is managed and pursued. It is a set of hinges on which all of our everyday thinking and doing turns, meaning nothing happens without going in and out of our worldview. You can't live apart from it. Here's a second definition, and this is actually by the author of, of, of the book, The Universe Next Door, James Sire. He says this, A worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, that we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. What view of the world are you committed to? Have you ever thought about that? My hope is that at the end of this series, you'll have at least a framework with which to ask those questions. What view of the world or vision of life am I committed to? What is the actual orientation of my heart? And actually, hopefully, we get better at expressing it through story or as a set of presuppositions. Here's what we hope of our worldview, that it's more true than not true, that if it's partially true, it becomes fully true, that we hold it more consciously than subconsciously, that it's more consistent than inconsistent, so that we understand the basic constitution of reality. And it actually will provide us a foundation for thriving in this world. And I hope that we want that for both ourselves and for everybody else that we interact with. Because to not want that for people is actually quite unloving. And hopefully we're a loving people. So here are the eight questions that we'll go through with each of the different worldviews that we'll look at, including our own. Number one, what is prime reality, the really real? Number two, what is the nature of external reality? That is, the world around us. What is a human being? 
What happens to a person at death? Five, why is it possible to know anything at all? Six, how do we know what is right and what is wrong? Seven, what is the meaning of human history? And eight, based on the answers to the first seven, what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? Like I said, some of you are going to love this kind of discussion. Others of you, this might be new or not the way that your mind processes. Don't check out if this is not exciting for you. Because this is important for any human being that's ever existed to think through these kinds of questions, to be able to have conversations about these kind of things, to understand people around these kind of categories, because ultimately it will affect eternal destiny. So we should care about it, even if it's not our jam. So how do we come to answers about these kinds of questions that make up our worldview? One, they're experienced. I had this thought the other night as uh, I was laying in bed. Actually, it was in the morning. And lots of times in the morning, Allie will bring, bring Grayson into the bed and he'll lay right next. And I'm just laying there. I'm just watching this young buck, strong as an ox, tall like his dad, 90th percentile, no big deal. And I'm watching him and he's kicking around. I mean, he's just kicking his legs, you know. He's kicking everything around him. And he's kicking me, right? And it's making me laugh and it's making me smile. And he's looking right at me. And I'm in love with him, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, I think whether he knows it or not, his worldview is being shaped. It's actually being formed right now in this moment. He's only eight weeks old. Why? Because as he kicks and he hits something, he realizes that there's a world around him that's as real as he is. And he's not just kicking a wall, he's kicking me. And I'm saying, ouch, and I'm laughing and I'm smiling. So he's, there's a cause and effect. So he is learning that this world that he lives in has cause and effect. And you know what it also has? <clears throat> I think he's realizing, I don't know this for sure, but subconsciously, that there's other personal beings that exist around him. That he is not the only personal being because he's seeing me smile and react as he's kicking me. Now, he may or may not real, realize this as well. He may or may not realize that he's not the center of the universe. Why do I say he might not? You know, I think most kids do think that they're center, the center of the universe. But I've just got to think that as he looks at my massive size compared to his, that he must think that I could crush him if I wanted to. That until he's about 16 years old, I'm going to be able to back him down into the post if we're playing one-on-one -on -one basketball. Surely he must not think he's the center of the universe, but you know what, he might, and many kids do, so I'm not going to make a concrete conclusion on that one. But he's learning about a lot about the world through experience, right? So that's one way that we develop our worldview. The second way is that we're taught. I'm going to so say something that might just crush many of you. I plan to teach my son Grayson about God. What? Don't you want to just let him find out for himself? No, I don't want to let him find out for himself. I know about God because somebody told me about him. Somebody had a conversation with me about him. I asked questions. People helped me to figure out, is there a God or not? I plan to teach Grayson about God. He'll read books. I'll probably give him some books to read. He'll take classes. 
all sorts of classes about science and math, literature. He'll be exposed to a lot of things that will inform his worldview. And I hope to be a part of that for him, right? I hope to help him create a healthy, true, conscious, consistent worldview. And I feel like, I was having this conversation with my mother-in-law, I feel like that's a dirty word to teach your kid about God. And we like to say, I'll let my kid figure it out on his own. You know who's not letting him figure it out on his own? The media, marketers, advertisers. Why do we need to be the ones that let him figure it out on his own? Now having said that, just because you teach your kid your own worldview, it does not make your worldview that you teach him necessarily true. That should scare you to death. Just because I teach Grayson a worldview doesn't mean that I'm teaching him a true worldview. What should that make me want to do? Figure out if the worldview that I hold, that I'm living by, that's informing everything that I do, is actually true or not. Why? Because I'm going to be teaching it to my son. And I don't want to lead him down a false path. So whether I teach him or I don't teach him, yes, it's also true that at the end of the day, he still needs to grow up and figure out for himself what's true and what's not true, what view or vision of the world is accurate. He needs to test it, examine it, consider it for himself. He needs to develop his own worldview, and he will. So just by teaching him doesn't mean that he accepts it. It's just, if I believe that it's true, if I've examined and tested it myself, why wouldn't I want to pass that along to my son? I think it's lazy. I think it's irresponsible to, one, not come to a place where we have confidence in our own worldview, and then, second, to not teach it to the next generation. And I think that's a dirty word around these parts, especially if you're a Christian teaching your kids those truths. So, let me just say this. The other, thing, the other thing that I hear so often is this, and I think it's one of the things that keeps us out of great conversations, and it has to do with this whole teaching your kids, and that's one of the ways they get their worldview. I hear this excuse all the time. Well, this is just the way that I grew up. You know, maybe it'd be different if I had Christian parents. Well, sure it would be different, but that doesn't change what's true and what's not true, Okay. I think it's a cop-out. Whether you're a theist or an atheist, a Christian or a Muslim, a Hindu or a Buddhist, a deist or a New Ager, at the end of the day, the excuse, this is just the way I was brought up, I don't think it holds any weight. 
because you still have a chance to figure out, is that true? So let's not do that as Christians, and let's not let people off the hook when they use that excuse as non-Christians. And don't be rude about it, you just have to say, yeah, that's okay, I know we grew up differently, but it doesn't change the fact that we should try to figure out what reality actually is. So let's test it, let's consider it and examine it. And if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for your kids. So that they might come to actually know what's true and live in the world the way that it is. And relate to God, if there's a God, the way that He should be related to. If you don't care about it for yourself, do it for your kids because that's part of what it means to be a parent. Okay. Sorry, that was a little rant on parenting because I am a new parent and Grayson was kicking me very hard. So, whatever, however we were brought up, however much examination, consideration we've done of our own view, whatever, wherever we are at, how then do we validate whether a worldview is true or not true? See what I'm saying? There's plenty of worldviews. How do we know which worldviews relate well to reality and which do not? Unfortunately, most people don't. They don't. So we have these latent assumptions undergirding our worldview, and they might be true, partially true, or completely false. Just because we believe them doesn't mean that they're true. There's also the resulting conclusions of those assumptions. They can be equally true, partially true, or completely false. Just because I come to a conclusion doesn't mean that I've come to a conclusion rightly. How do I know this? Well, there's either a God or there's not a God. And there's plenty of people on both sides of the camp. Both can't actually be true. There can't actually be a God and actually not be a God. So what are the tests? How do we know if our worldview is actually functioning well? One is congruence. Does our worldview match up with reality? So if in our worldview somewhere we find the absurd presupposition that all human beings have the same hair color, we would say that's not congruent with reality because we've experienced we know that people have different hair color. That would be a test of, of, of falsity. Another test is the test of internal consistency. Here's an example of this. If I say, one, that human beings are simply complex biological machines, is that statement consistent with another statement that's a part of my worldview that says, for instance, murder of a human being is more morally wrong than murdering a squirrel? Are those two presuppositions consistent within a single worldview? And we don't want our own worldview to have that, and we want to be able to see that perhaps, in other worldviews. And then third is the test of coherence. Does it make any sense at all? When it rains, the world is reborn. If you hear that, that's not a very coherent statement. You might disagree. We could talk about that later. So we understand what a worldview is. We maybe understand how they come to be. And we maybe understand how to validate whether or not a worldview is Accurate or not accurate? How does that, or an understanding of worldviews, mitigate fear? 
And how does it actually make us better as conversationalists? Here's what I think. First, familiarity. As we go through and we look at each of the different worldviews that are general categories for worldviews, and of course within them there's millions of individual worldviews, but these are general categories. As we become familiar with the worldview of others, I think it's going to make us a better listener because we're familiar with the vocabulary, we're familiar with the reasoning or the ways people think. I know I had this epiphany in my very first seminary class. I was sitting in a theology class, and I was an accountant by trade. So I didn't study much literature, for sure, and I'd never taken a Bible class in my life, let alone a theology class. And I'm sitting in my first theology class, and people are talking, and I have no idea what they're saying. I felt completely lost. I don't think I've ever felt more like I was speaking a different language than them. I had no idea. But as I listened, and I learned, and I began to become familiar with the way they talked about theology, I realized that I actually had pretty good theology, that somehow had gotten in there. But I was becoming familiar with the way even the Christian community talked about God. And I think that happens with other worldviews. So I think it actually helps us be better listeners because we're not so lost We're not always catching up because we've thought about it at least a little bit. The second way that it mitigates fear is this. By understanding these basic camps, instead of processing and thinking about what we're going to say next, we're engaged, we're listening, we're trying to understand the nuances of the way they're articulating their own worldview. Because we're not scared that we're going to be shown the fool. We're not scared that we don't even know what we actually believe. So we're not trying constantly to process our next comment. We can actually sit and hear what's being said. I think lots of times our first response, and I know I fall prey to this all the time, my first response in fearful conversations like this is argumentation. I just want to start arguing with them because I'm scared that I might be proven wrong. And I think the more we understand other worldviews, the more we've sat and we've thought about, the less likely we are to argue. The third way that I think this really helps mitigate fear and improve conversation is this. Because we've thought about the way other people think and the way they see the world, we can actually begin to articulate in the conversation back to them what they've said. Or maybe even help them articulate it better. As I've studied other religions, and I've actually been able to articulate their position better. And as I do, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. And then they're way more willing to share and take you to the next level of their worldview because they see that you understand. So we don't argue with them. We actually listen to them, and we help them we're helping them to articulate their worldview. You say, shouldn't we? we don't want to do that, right? We want them to articulate the Christian worldview. No, I think we want to help them articulate their own worldview and see it for what it is, and then they can assess whether or not that's actually consistent, congruent with reality, and coherent. 
But lots of times people have such a hard time articulating the way they view the world that they never get to a place where they can see it for what it is. So we want to be able to help them do it. That's part of why we're doing that. We don't change their mind. We just help them to see the way that they live and act in the world. And hopefully, as we uncover that for them, they might be more open to hear how we see and process the world. So the goal of this series is not to tear down other worldviews. It's not to bash other worldviews. It's not to talk bad behind their back. But instead, it's to look carefully and honestly at other visions of the universe, to see them for what they are, to learn to articulate them and to think about them and to ask, is that true? Is that not true? Where is the gospel in that? Is this seeking the gospel in some way but coming about it from a a proper perspective? We want to affirm what is good and true and reasonable in other worldviews. We want to see where it matches up with the Christian worldview. We want to point out the gospel when we see it in other worldviews. And I'll share some examples in my own life with other worldviews of where I felt like people were articulating the gospel, but they were using this whole other language. And I would get to the end and I'd say, so what you're looking for is a Savior, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, that's exactly what... I'm a Christian, and that's exactly what I think that we have in Jesus Christ. And they go, I've never thought about it that way. Those kind of things will happen when you understand the way people think and view the world. And then there will be parts of other worldviews that you say, this simply is not compatible with a Christian worldview. It's not compatible with the gospel. And so unfortunately, we cannot affirm that part of the worldview. So that's kind of the hope, the goal of the series. What I want to do really quickly is take a look at Psalm 8, and it's printed in your bulletin, so you can look at there. You don't need to turn in your Bible. And I actually printed the NIV version, even though often we use, uh, most often we use the ESV, because there's a particular word in the, in the NIV that's not in the ESV that is particularly special to uh, me and this community. You'll see it as we go. And I want to read this, which is an articulation of a Christian worldview by a psalmist as he's inspired by the Spirit of God writing this psalm. And he writes this, Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, all that swims the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. It's a great psalm. A great song of praise to God. And now what I want to do is I want to look verse by verse and see what we can uncover about the worldview of the psalmist 
which is to say the worldview of the Christian because our worldview as Christians is informed by the Word of God and this psalm is included in God's providence and sovereign hand recorded and kept for us. So let's start verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory in the heavens. And the reason I'm doing this is I want to help us learn how to see and hear worldview as it comes out through the words of men. What does this tell us? Lord, our Lord. One, there is a God who is, question one, the ultimate reality. He is the really real. He is the greatest being that exists. Why do I think that? Why would you cry out, Lord, to any other being that's lesser than you? Why would you say your name is majestic in all the earth? Clearly, the psalmist believes that there's a God and God is the ultimate reality, the greatest being that exists. What about little words like our and name? Does that tell us anything? I think it tells us that God, in the view of the psalmist, is a personal being. He's not an impersonal force. He's a personal being because He's our Lord. He relates personally to His people. And He has a name. He has a personal name. So He's not an impersonal force. What else does this first verse tell us about the worldview of the Christian? The word set. Here's what I think it tells us. That God has set the heavens in place. And when he speaks here, the heavens, he's talking about the stars and the sky. The cosmos. What does this tell us? God created the world. And when you set something somewhere, you do it on your own prerogative. It didn't just accidentally hap happen and it has your name on it, but you set it there purposefully. So God is purposeful in his creation. It's His agenda to create and He set things in place as He wished. And I think we can also say because He set it there that the universe is not Himself. What does that mean? That means that God is transcendent, that God is not the universe because He has set the universe in place. So He Himself is not the universe, but He has set the universe in place. Those are huge Worldview assumptions that are coming out in one verse of the Bible. Let's go to verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. God has enemies, those who oppose his reign and rule. We might be considered enemies of God ourselves. I think this also tells us God is active in the world that he is not so distant from the world that he's either uninterested in it or incapable of acting in the creation that he has put together. Because he establishes within the world strongholds against his enemies. What else? That God humbles his enemies by using means that prove his presence, right? So the reason that the praise of children and infants establishes God's strongholds is because he uses children and infants to humble 
what otherwise might seem like mighty powers. That's kind of the idea. Why does he do that? Because he wants to be known. Because he wants to be known. God wouldn't use alternative means to establish his stronghold unless he wanted people to know that it was because he exists. Three, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. This is why I picked the NIV, because it says consider. Human beings can and should consider. So question three is what is a human being? Well, we're considering beings meaning we can think about God and His creation and what He's done and what He's doing. We can know we're reasoning, rational beings. We can think through things as we look at them and observe. And I think it also tells us that human beings are capable of actually knowing God Himself. Four, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you should care for them? Here we see human beings are not equal to God. Which is to say, human beings are not themselves God or gods. We are not divine. Because who are we that God, the divine, is mindful of us? So God is far greater than human beings, but God cares deeply about human beings. Verse 5. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. What does this say? Human beings are created beings. We were created. We didn't have pre-existence like God did. There are angels that exist, which is to say there are other conscious spiritual beings that exist in the universe, and God has created them as well. But here's what it also says. Human beings are special creation of God. They are not just like the rest of creation. There's something unique and special about them. Verse 6. You made them rulers over the work of your hands, them being humans. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Animals, too, are part of God's design and handiwork, but human beings have a unique purpose and mission, which is, in part, at least, to rule over and maintain and to steward the rest of God's creation, including the animal world. Those are big statements. Those are a part of our worldview. And nine, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What does this tell us? If you repeat something, it's incredibly important. And the psalmist starts and he ends with the same phrase. And it reminds us that first and foremost, even though stewarding God's creation is important, that first and foremost, all of that stewarding, all of that unique purpose that He's given humanity, ultimately, if it isn't bringing praise and glory to the name of God, if people aren't seeing God for who He, who he actually is, then it's all for naught because God's glory is His main focus and should be ours too. So there's a ton about the Christian worldview that we see from this one short psalm. And all we had to do was listen and hear the way that the psalmist talked about his view of the world, which is to say the way that God has inspired him to speak of the world, which is to say if we call ourselves Christians, we should in some way adopt this psalm as part of our worldview and seeing God this way. So, We'll come back again and again to how Christians answer these same eight questions and how it relates to the way other worldviews, other religions and philosophies relate to these questions. 
But let me close with this. As we seek to get better, as we work through this series, as we seek to understand other worldviews, as we seek to mitigate our fear, we must always remember that it's our fear that's going to create motionlessness in us, that it's fear that's going to keep us out of important conversations, that it's fear that is going to keep the conversation much like a cocktail conversation, but it's also fear on the other side of the aisle. So we might be fearful as Christians, but I think non-Christians or not yet Christians are just as afraid as us. There's a great quote by one of my favorite uh, philosophers. He's a scientist as well, a true Renaissance man. His name's Blaise Pascal. And in his book, Pensees, which is French for thought, he says this. He never finished it because he died. But his whole project, how he wanted to defend Christianity and draw people in to hear and to consider and to trust the Christian worldview, the truth of who God is, this is how he said it. Men despise religion. Why? They hate it and are afraid that it may be true. The cure for this is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, and here he's speaking of the Christian religion, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then, show them that it is. I love Pascal, and I love the way he talks about that. And the only way that you're going to get into the kinds of conversations with fearful men that are scared that perhaps there is a God, perhaps they are sinful in need of a Savior, perhaps the Gospel is true and the cross of Christ was required to be back into relationship with God and to live with Him in eternity. They're scared that that might be true, so they stay away. The only way to get into relationship with them and have the conversation with them is to not be scared ourselves, to start talking and listening and speaking in these kinds of terms, to be in these kinds of conversations, to trust that God has revealed to us a true way of seeing the world. And I think as we talk about it, they'll see that it's worthy of reverence and respect, that it's not quite as absurd as they thought it was, that it's a little bit more congruent than they thought it was, that it's quite consistent internally with itself, way more coherent than what they remember when they watch the History Channel. And it might become even attractive. They might wish that it were true. And then God will show them that it is. That's my hope. That we break through our fear. We step into big conversations. And I hope that this series helps us do that. Let's pray. Father God, there is so much to know about you. So much truth in your being that is beyond anything that we could comprehend. We just pray, Lord, that you'd begin after consistent and committed pursuit and consideration of your, of your true being, of reality as it is, that you would begin to peel back some of those false visions, those parts of our worldview that are inconsistent with who you are, with the world you created, that we would see our own worldview as it should be, as you've created it, and that we would learn to converse and speak with and listen to and have respect for the way others see the world so that we can hopefully 
work with them to articulate it, see it for what it is, and then perhaps compare it next to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ultimate truth, the ultimate act of love, the ultimate need that we have as human beings. That's my hope. That's my prayer. Give us the energy and strength to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen.